The greatest gift you can receive is God's love gift in Christ Jesus. Amen. And uh, since it's Christmas, I've taken 1 John 4.10 and kind of launched into a couple messages on the extent of his love for us because that's what 1 John 4, sorry, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 4.10 is about. And we're going verse by verse through 1 Timothy. So let's go back to 1 Timothy and I'll pick it up kind of where I left off last time uh, because we launched from 1 Timothy 4.10 into uh, John 3.16 and especially beloved verse it's called the golden verse. It's called, you know, it's definitely the most popular verse in the Bible. A lot of us just take it for granted. And others can't really appreciate the beauty of it. A lot of people think that, I don't know if he really loves the world, you know. I don't know if that's what that means because they've, taught, they've been taught it doesn't. But we're in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. And this is the verse we're studying in because verses 9 and 10. Uh, that we launched off, I should say, as we're going through 1 Timothy. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. You should fully accept this truth in your lives. And for, it's for this that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of just a few people or of the elect only or of who? All men, but especially of who? especially of believers. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in 1 Timothy 4.10 because we spent some time there yesterday. Or I should say yesterday, last, uh, last week. But he's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And, and the best way and what makes sense to, and I, and I think most scholars got it right on this, even though it's unfortunately has become a controversial verse because some people want to deny that Jesus uh, died for the sins of the world. But it says he's the Savior of all men. Yet he's especially, what, the Savior for what? What does he say in verse 10? Of believers. So in what sense is he the Savior of all men? In what sense is he the Savior of believers in a special way? What makes the most sense there? By far and away, when you look at the context in which this verse falls, is that all men refers to all men. And that those who believe refers to those who believe. To take it another way, you've got to do what we call eisegesis. You have to read in the text. But we take it for what it says, especially when you consider the context. Do you remember Paul made another faithful saying in 1 Timothy chapter 1, a few chapters before this. Remember verses 15, 16, 17? Where he says the faithful saying that Jesus came to the world to save who? Sinners. Who are the sinners? Everyone. Of which I am what? Chief. Amen. That's a faithful saying, man. He, he saved Paul, the chief of sinners. And then Paul goes on to say that he'll accept anybody that comes to him. Because if he was saved as a worse sinner, God saved him, Paul says, as an example that he'll save you. Amen? These are such comforting passages. And I, I very much think these verses need to be emphasized more in the church than they did even in John Wesley's day. Because John Wesley and the Wesleyans... Uh, Methodists, Nazarenes later, they were called Wesleyan Holiness people. That was a big battle because so many people were under the funk that God didn't love them, that Jesus didn't die for them. But when you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, you have a faithful saying that Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of which I am chief. And you put that with this verse. He's the Savior of who? 
all men, but especially those who believe. Yet Paul, even in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and following, he's not teaching universalism in the sense that everybody will be saved because he goes on to mention you must come to Jesus to be saved. Amen? That if he couldn't make it any clearer, he does. A few verses later, no chapter breaks in the original. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he goes on to say to pray for everybody, including kings, right? And those who are in authority and for all men. Why? Why? Because it says in verse 4 that God what? God wills that what? All would be saved and come to what? The knowledge of the truth. That's why you pray for everybody. He says for a couple reasons. Because God wants us to have peace when we preach the gospel. So pray for your leaders. I was, praying for, I was praying for Biden today. I was praying for Netanyahu today. I was praying even for Kamala Harris today. And I prayed a little bit for Putin and some of the world leaders, you know. Because they need prayer. And the worse they are, the more prayer they need. You know? Or the worse dire straits they are. But I also pray for their salvation. That's important to do, guys. As hard as it is. You know? I was talking to Jesse uh, last week after Bible study on Wednesday night, and we were together with a bunch of our brothers and sisters after Wednesday service, and up we went to Chili's or what have you, and he was like, I pray that they'll fear God. It's hard to pray for them, but I'll pray that the, the, the world leaders will fear God. And that's very similar to what I pray. Pray that up here, you know? You know, cause them to fear you, Lord, and, and, and do what's right. Amen? So to pray for them. But he goes on to say that God wills that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he goes on to say there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, verse 5. Then in verse 6 he says, who gave himself as a ransom, does it say only for the elect? Gave himself as a ransom for who? All. There it is again. All. All. All sinners, you know. Now I love my Calvinist brothers and sisters, but they will at this point say, when he's saying pray for everybody and God wills that all would be saved and Christ gave himself a ransom for all, what he means is Jews and Gentiles. He means people, he's talking about different classes of people. Because you see, he says, pray for kings and those who are in authority. It's about different classes of people. So when he says all there, what he really means is he, 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 he wants all to be saved, meaning he wants certain kings to be pray, uh, saved. He wants certain people of all men, Jews, certain Jews to be saved and certain Gentiles to be saved. Are you with me? That's what they say. There's a problem with that. <laughs> First of all, it misses the context that Paul said he was the worst of them all. It also misses the context. Come on now. That when you're praying for kings, how can you just pray for elect kings? Who are the elect kings? What king was elect by then? What king was the elect king then? I mean, do you get out a phone booth and you a phone book and look through it and try to find a big E for every elect king? You know? Or do you get or how do you pray for all men? Well, when Paul says all men, he died for sinners, he was that all be saved. He's the savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. I think it's quite obvious, and this is how most exegetes and most commentators and most scholars take it, and I agree with them. So he's talking about everybody. Even when you say all, even if you want to translate it to me and, and read into it, all classes of people he wills to be saved. Well, guess what? Well, that's still everybody, because classes are made up of people. What if I said Jesus wills that all females and all males be saved? Well, that's two classes of people, but what am I talking about? Do I just think he, do I think it just means he wants some females to be saved and some males to be saved? No. If I say he wants all Jews and all Gentiles to be saved and pray for them, does that, does that sound like I'm meaning that he wants some of those Jews to be saved or all of them or some of the Gentiles? No. So even if you want to put, the, put that in the text and kind of put some, you know, eisegesis there, you still fail because he died for each and every person and he wills that all would be saved. 
And I love what Spurgeon says here. I almost brought the quote, but I didn't bring the quote. You know why? It's like two-thirds of a page long. But it's a great quote, and he's a strong Calvinist. Spurgeon, I have some hard disagreements with him where he even said, Calvinism is the gospel. I have a really hard time with that. But I love what he says in 1 Timothy 2.4, where it says, God wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. He says, basically, unfor- I'm going to paraphrase him, he says, unfortunately, some of our f- past Calvinist leaders have tried to make this verse say, instead of he wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, is that he wills that some men would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth by the time they get done with it. He goes, I know how to put the gunpowder into a verse and explode it to where it doesn't, no longer says what it says. But he says, but I regard the scripture too highly to do that to the scripture. And I regard the scripture more highly than my doctrine. Even though it, it contradicts his doctrine, his Calvinism, he says, I am not going to be foolhardy and twist that verse into saying it's something it doesn't say. Good job, Mr. Spurgeon there. He said, I'd rather be consistent with the Bible than consistent with my doctrine. I'm paraphrasing him, but it's quite a long quote. And uh, So anyway, we looked at the context that that passage falls in. And aren't you glad? What if, what if you left here today and I convinced you that Jesus really didn't want to save everybody? And he really isn't the Savior of the world. And he really doesn't, didn't die for everybody. And, and you really can't be absolutely positive that he died for you. Would you be able to celebrate Christmas the same way? Yes or no? You need to rejoice that he loves you personally. That when we talk about the world, we talk about all people, he's specifically talking about you. And we ought to appreciate that. It's really sad when people don't appreciate what God has done for them. But God giving his son for you and me, man, we should show some serious appreciation. Amen? We need to show serious appreciation. Now, we went from there to John 3.16. Go to John 3.16. By way of, I'll summarize this a little bit more, but I want to uh, just kind of hit some things really hard or quick in John 3.16. I'm not going to quote two top Calvinists, which I quoted last time. I quoted D.A. Carson, one of the top Calvinistic theologians, admitting that John 3.16, when it says, God so loved the world, he's talking about the world. He's talking about everybody without exception, all human beings. And he wrote a little book, which I have, called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And in that book, he talks about this. I got some great quotes out of that. And D.A. Carson is one of those highly respected Calvinistic teachers. Yet in that book, he says, he makes it clear that the word world, the way it's used in John and 1 John, is speaking of the depth of the badness of the world and also the breadth of the bigness of the world in 1 John 2.2. 2. I think he does a great job there. You're, you're quite right, Mr. Carson. And I applaud his exegesis to that point. Now, where he would stumble, I believe, is to say, well, does he love them in really a salvific way so much to give his son for them so they could be saved? Then he kind of backs off, which is sad. But I also quoted Mounts, William Mounts, not Mouse, William Mounts. And he's a top, he's one of the most respected Greek scholars. He, you know, he has Greek grammars he's written. And when you look for Greek grammars, Mounts' name comes up more than just about anybody's. He's a Calvinist. Yet he says in, first John, in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He said a lot of the Calvinists, like James White and others, he's probably talking about because that's who does it, they try to get rid of the whosoever. 
And so it doesn't reply to, it doesn't really, it's not open to everybody. And so he really just loves the elect. And he says, that's not good exegesis. And he's a Calvinist. And he says in his article, I read his article twice now at least, he says, he goes, you can't do that. He says, it's definitely referring to the whole world, you know, and whosoever of the world he loves. And they can come to him. He does a great job there. I applaud him. I say, praise the Lord. Good job, Mr. Mounts. It's like Spurgeon trying to be faithful to the text instead of a doctrine. Like Carson, same deal. Mounts was doing the same thing. And I got those great quotes. And, and then we looked at uh, John Piper because we looked at three different ways that Calvinists get around John 3.16. And John 3.16, if it's not on your favorite list, if it's not your favorite verse, it's got to be, I hope, on your favorite verse list. Do you have a favorite verse list? John 3.16 has got to be there. John 3.17 is, is right there with it as far as I'm concerned. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, he didn't send his son to the world condemn, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Saved. That's the heart of God. That's the plan for mankind, for humanity. And as we approach Christmas, you can rejoice that he loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. Amen? That even though Jesus was the richest person in the universe, he became the poorest. He had no place to lay his head and died the worst kind of death to atone for your sins. Amen? And we ought to all be rejoicing. But I told you last week, there are three different ways. There are three different ways that Calvinists that I'm aware of, maybe there's more, there's three, the three most popular ways they try to get around John 3.16. And please go there if you're not there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's good to see everybody trickling in. That's cool. Don't look. They got a long drive, man, all the way from Santa Clarita. I think. That, that area, right, bro? Praise God. He's also one of our bodyguards, as you could tell. Oh, actually. <laughs> actually, you were actually here. You guys have been here, actually. So, for God so loved the world that he gave, praise the Lord, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, right? Now, how do you get around that? One way is to say, well, the word world there must mean elect. Many Calvinists have said that. For God so loved the elect, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, whoever of the elect, that doesn't make any sense, right? Because in Calvinism, all the elect will inevitably and irresistibly believe. But, They'll say it means elect. That's been happening for centuries. It means elect right there. No, it doesn't. The word's cosmos in the Greek. It doesn't mean elect. But we're going to see what does it mean. And guess what's going to happen today if you pay attention. Even if you close one eye and you're a little tired because you had too much eggnog or whatever you had, you're still going to be able to leave here. And I'm going to guarantee for the most part, for just about everybody here, anybody who pays attention, you're going to be able to leave here if somebody tries to rob you of the precious treasure that is John 3.16. You'll know easily how to deal with it. So first off, it, it, we've already, I'm going to prove to you that the word cosmos does not mean elect. The other way around that, and many Calvinists are doing this, is said, well, it doesn't mean elect. It should be translated world for sure. But it's talking about the different nations of the world and the different people groups of the world that he died for. But not everybody in those people groups and in those nations, just the elect. So what are they doing? They're collapsing the word world to mean basically the same thing the first argument has, still meaning just the what? Just the elect, Amen. So they're still really saying that the world there means the elect. It's, it just means the elect that are around the world, worldwide elect. Oh, wait, does it say in John 3, 16, for God so loved the worldwide elect? No, that's eisegesis again. So that way we're going to see those don't work because we're going to look at what the word world means. But a third way they get around it is say, and this is a popular, 
Well, he loved the world, but it doesn't love the world in a salvific way. Like even John Piper would say, yeah, he died for the world. Even all the lost people he died for in a certain way, but not to save them. Not so they could have eternal life. And so it's kind of a second-rate love, you know? And that's why even D.A. Carson said, when my seminary students or people ask me, can I tell the people that Jesus loves them in the world, even if they're probably not the elect or they're not the elect? And he said, of course you can. Yet his caveat or his qualification later is, well, he loves them in a certain way, but not enough to give them salvation. John Piper would say he loves them and even gave his son for them, John Piper would say, but he didn't die for them in the same way he died for the elect because he doesn't send his Holy Spirit to regenerate them and make them born again. Are you with me? That's just the strangest stuff. And so they're still trying to limit the love of God. But we already saw that doesn't work because John 3.16, is it just this kind of nebulous love that's undefined? God so loved the world, does it stop there? No, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes him shall not what? Perish, but have what? Eternal life. (coughs) And now it's going to pick up and you're going to be blown away, I believe, because you're going to be like, wow, this is just too clear. So what's it saying there? The love he's talking about that he has for the world there is what kind of love? Salvific love. For God so loved that world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes him should not perish, but have eternal life. We're talking about salvation here, guys. We're talking about salvific love. Man, I would hate to be on the wrong side of judgment and diminishing what God has done for the world in my witness to the world. That's a hairy thing. If you're a Calvinist listening, I love you, man. But you're going to have to stand before God and give an account for minimizing his great love and bearing false witness against what he did on the cross and sending his son for the world. I've told you before, man, if somebody went around saying, my, my, life just, my wife doesn't like the, uh, you know, love the church, you know. She doesn't love people in the church, and she just loves certain people in the church. And I said, she loves everybody, males and females, everybody. Well, yeah, she loves males and females, but just some males and just some females of the church. And she hates everybody else, and she wants them to be down forever. I'd say, what? Say what? That's bearing false witness. That's not my wife. She loves you guys. She prays for you. She cares for you. Well, Steve and Carol, too, you know. You know, they just love those they think are the special elect in the church, you know. And no, I know Stephen Carroll have great hearts, man. <laughs> they love all you guys. And I'd be like, don't do that. That's wrong. But you say that about my God, who demonstrated his love through giving his son for the world, who tasted death, the Bible says, for everyone, who says he wills that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And he also says in, John, in Matthew 18, is it, well, that even any of the little ones would perish, Right? No, or he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather they return and repent and be saved. No, don't say that. That's the worst kind of false witness you can bear against God. Well, then if you turn around and say, well, he predestined most people because he wants to be glorified by them burning, but he could save them by just kind of regenerating them, but he didn't want to send his son to die for them because he wants to show how big his his spiritual biceps are. Give me a break, man. So, now... Let's uh, really get into the uh, focusing on really uh, going through some different scriptures. Uh, skipping a lot of what I preached last time and getting right into the nitty-gritty. First of all, I want to show you the way world is used in John's writings. And, and he uses the word world in 1 John like almost 25 times, I think 23 times in 1 John. 
He used the word world a lot. He never, ever once uses of the elect. He speaks of the elect. Oftentimes in 1 John, it's those who are saved, you know, those who belong to the Lord as we. We, 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 we. In fact, go to 1 John. Then we'll go back to John 3.16. Go to 1 John and check this out. It's quite interesting. 1 John. And when you get there, he speaks of the you know, believers as we. 1 John 1.7. If we walk in the light as he's in light, we have fellowship one with another, right? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins, right? If we walk in the light as he's in light, right? Who's that speaking of? Believers, right? The elect. Oh, and one night, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just forgive us our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? We, right? So we see it all over and over again in 1 John. Look at 1 John 3.1. 1 John 3.1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that what? We would be called the children of God. And such we are. So you can see the word we is used of who? Believers, over and over again in 1 John, right? The, the elect, those who belong to God. And when I, we're talking about elect, we're talking about those who belong to God. Look at 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So we are those believers who pass from death to life, those who are the elect, who belong to God. So the elect are definitely identified. Uh, in fact, 1 John 4, 6 says, we are from who? We're from God, right? He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, I want you to notice how the word we is contrasted with the lost world. So when John used the word world, how is he using the word world? Is he using it of the elect, like a second elect group? No. He uses it of the wicked who need to be saved. Go back now and go to 1 John chapter 2. Verse 2. It says, of, at, uh, well, let's go to verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Don't sin, guys. Don't break God's heart. L live righteous lives. Cry out to God. Say, Lord, help me live a life that glorifies you. Help me be really sweet and loving and caring to my wife, my children, if you're a married man, my husband and my children, if you're a married a wife uh, with uh, children. If you are just married, praise God. You don't have any children. Lord, help me love my spouse even when they're hard to, to love. Amen. If you're not married, you're single. Praise God. Jesus was single. Apostle Paul was single. He wrote half the New Testament. Jesus is our Savior. Amen. Lord, help me live a holy life and stay away from sin and the temptations of the world. But, you know, if you've fallen into sin, look what he goes on to say. And if anyone sins, we have what? An advocate, a defense lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's why he mentions we need to confess our sins. Amen? Make sure we're right with God. It's imperative that you make sure you're right with God. But then look what he says. And he himself is a propitiation. Propitiation means payment. He's the propitiation or the payment for whose sins? Our sins. Who's the we? Who's the us? Who's the our? The what? Who's that? The believers, the elect, the church. Amen? Aren't you grateful that he's the propitiation for our sins? But look what he says. And this is one of the best churches, that best uh, verses that destroys Calvinism. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I love that he doesn't just say world there too. World been enough? 
cosmos, but he says halas cosmos. Whole world. Halas cosmos. Or that adjective is halu, which is from same as halas. Halas cosmos. The whole world, man. So notice the whole world that he is a propitiation for is contrasted with the we, the us, right? Our. Right? He's a propitiation for our sins, who we just talked about. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just forgives our sins and cleanses us. What? Of all unrighteousness. But he's, guess what? He's not only a propitiation for our sins, but he's a propitiation for the sins of who? The The whole world. Not just the elect. Not just the believers. Right? But the whole world. Well, who is the world in 1 John? The word world is used, some, it's never used of the elect, by the way. Never refers to the elect anywhere in John's writings or in the whole New Testament. But guess what? It's used of the impersonal evil world. It's used of personal people that are evil in the world. In fact, in 1 John 2, 15, 16 and 17, John says, we know that we are of God, but the, well... No, he says in verse 15, he says, Love not the world, do the things that are in the world. For all that is of the world is of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, right? And the world is passing away in the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Does that sound like the elect? Love not the elect. For all that is of the elect is the what? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, right? And the world and the elect's passing away. No, that wouldn't fit, would it? We're not talking about the elect, we're talking about world in 1 John. In fact, let's look at how he uses the word world throughout 1 John. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, the very next verse. 1 John, I'm sorry. Yeah, chapter, well, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that's the elect, that we, that's the elect, would be called children of God. And such we are. Look what he goes on to say. For this reason, the world, what? Does not know us, because it did not, what? Know him. Is he talking about the world being the elect there, or the lost? The lost, brothers and sisters. Amen. The lost. Amen. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into the world is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now is even already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is that which animates the fallen, wicked world system that rejects Christ. Amen? Verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. See how the you, the we, the us, the elect is contrasted with the wicked world. Are you with me? You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is what? In the world. That would be stupid to say it means elect. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the elect. No, that would make any sense. Verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them, these false prophets. So keep in mind, we know that we are of God, but the whole world is, right? We know, well, 1 John 2, 2, I'm jumping to 5, 19, too quick. But 1 John 4, 2, you know, if anyone sins, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, 1 John 2, 1, right? Who's a propitiation, verse 2, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the what? Whole world. Who's the whole world? Who's the world in 1 John? 
the unbelievers, man, that are lost, that are under Satan's power, that are listening to the false prophets, that are rejecting the truth of the gospel. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them, verse 5, verse 6. We are from God in contrast. He who knows God listens to us, and he who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Wow. That's just powerful. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. In this is the love of, I'm sorry. In this is love, not that we loved God, but, but that he what? Loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, there it is, Joe. It doesn't mention the world there. He's not the savior of the world. He's the propitiation of our sins right there, verse 10. The elect. Well, yes, he is. But go to verse 14. Just drop down a few verses. We have seen and testified that the father has sent his son, what? Or the son to be what? The savior of the world. There's again, guys. And we're seeing how he's using world before this. John uses the word world so many times, it's pretty easy to see what he's talking about here. If he just used it a couple times, you know, we might, you might be able to just kind of trick us or, or get us in some kind of stupor. We're like, well, yeah, it's all. No, man, it's all over First John. Look at chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the what? Doesn't mean the elect overcomes the elect. That'd be silly. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Verse 5. Who is the one who has overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? It's right there again. It's conditional. Salvation is conditional. Even though he died for the world, you still have to come to faith. You have to surrender and say, no longer am I rebelling against you. God, I turn to you and I ask for forgiveness. I thank you that you sent your son to die for us because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God was in Christ Jesus when he died on the cross, not uh, holding their trespasses against them, the world, right? But offering them reconciliation. And it's through us, as he says, that he begs them to be reconciled to God. Begs them. The word in the Greek means begs. I've looked it up, man. God's begging people, turn to me and be saved. Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. Amen? He wants everyone to be saved. So man, I, I'm glad you guys are with me going through these scriptures. I'm glad this place got starting to fill up here pretty much, man, because I'm like this hurts. This, you have to have apologetics. Not just for saved people, or I should say lost people, but you have to have apologetics in the church. Because people have come into the church and are claiming Jesus doesn't love everybody. He wants to damn most people. Then you have these people like West Baptist, uh, West, what is it, Westboro Baptist Church. You know, Westboro, they're Calvinists, you know. Poor, Cal poor Baptists. There's a lot of good Baptists out there. They get saddled with that. I mean, those five, they're like five-point Calvinists, but they'll be, you know, holding signs at people's funerals who gave their lives to die for the nation. And they'll call them F-A-G-S and all these names, even though they aren't even homosexuals. And God hates blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, if you believe that God died, that God sent us, if you believe John 3, 16, right off the page, they'll condemn you. You're lost if you don't believe what, how we believe. I'm, that's what they teach. I got a lot of quotes from them I'm not using. But this has turned people in the world away from the love of God. Amen? We need them to give them, we need to give the world a clear message that God does love them. But they have to repent. And that Jesus said, unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Amen? We don't give a soft version of the gospel. Amen. We need to preach it right off the page where Jesus says, he that's not with me is against me. He that gathers not with me scatters abroad. We still have to preach and share the truth that you have to repent. He loves you, but you got to get right. Amen. So there's a lot of compromise on both sides. There's people who are not preaching 
the true love of God for all people. But there's also people saying, God loves you so much, he would never punish you in hell. And they're passing themselves off as evangelicals in many circles. That's a wicked doctrine, man. Universalism teaches everybody's going to be saved. Like Rob Bell wrote a book years ago, years ago now, that love wins. Meaning God's kind of going to win everybody in the end. That's a heresy, guys. So look at 1 John now, chapter 5, verse 19. We, who's we? We know that we are of God. Who's that? That's the believers. That's the church. That's the elect. We know that we are of God and the what? Whole world lies in who? Lies in what? The power of the evil one. Now remember I tell you, my Calvinist brothers and sisters, they will argue, many of them, 1 John 2, 2, that says he's a propitiation not only for our sins, the elect, but for the sins of the whole world. What God really means there is the elect around the world. The word world must mean that. Why must it mean that? The context of the way the word world is used throughout 1 John doesn't mean that. doesn't even hint that way. There's not even a verse that hints that way. Well, because my theology says so. Jettison your theology and stand before God and say, I've been faithful to your word. Amen? Because guess what? If the word whole world, in 1 John 2.2, now go back to 1 John 2.2, he's a propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Halas cosmos. Whole world. Is whole world really referring to all the elect around the world? Now go to 1 John 5.19. Look at the same construction in the Greek, the same parallel or contrast. We know, 1 John 5.19, that we are of God and what? The whole world is under the power of what? Or lies under the power or in the lap. Literally, it lies in the lap in the Greek. Lies in the lap or under the power of the evil one. That makes no sense if that whole world is the elect. Then John will be saying, we know that we are of God. And the whole world is under Satan's power. Or the whole elect is under Satan's power. Calvinists don't believe that. I mean, what kind, of, what kind of warning is that? What kind of encouragement is that? Well, you have to understand, the elect are under Satan's power at that time. Really? There's no context that's saying they're non-believing elect. Oh, well, they're under Satan's power. I don't even know what they say right there. Well, they're under Satan's power some way. No, nah, not. I'm mean, looking at 1 John 5, 18. Just back up one verse and look what it says about Satan's power and true believers. We know that no one who is born of God sins. But he's talking about practicing sin, lives in rebellion to God and continues in rebellion. But he was, uh, but he was born of God, what? But he was born of God, keeps him, and the evil one does not what? Touch him. The elect are not under Satan's power. The whole world, the lost world, that hates the gospel, that listens to the false prophets, that's filled with the spirit of Antichrist, which we've seen throughout 1 John now, that's under Satan's power. That whole world's under Satan's power. But praise God, he's propitiation not only for our sins, 1 John 2, 2, but for the sins of the whole world. And I praise God that when I'm sharing with people, I try to share with people quite a bit, whether I go out witnessing, but I just try to be a witness wherever I am, whether we go on a mission trip or not. And I don't even have to wonder if God loves that person. I don't have to, and I pray, God, give me a heart for the lost. And I could go down the street like I was yesterday and just see some guy walking, maybe in his 20s or whatever, and just get a little teary, saying, Lord, pray. I pray that he comes to know you. I don't even know this person. But he just seems so lonely, you know? And I don't have to wonder if God loves them. Because God told me to love my enemies. And Jesus said to love your enemies in Luke chapter 6 so you could be like your, your, the most high God because he loves his enemies. That's what Jesus said. 
Would we dare say we could love our enemies and want them to be saved and love them more than God loves them? That's blasphemy. In fact, where do we get love for the lost? I didn't just wake up one day having love for the lost. I'd be born again. And I have to pray, Lord, help me love the lost. Help me have your love for the lost. And the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, love, right? And uh, John chapter, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 5. The love of God is shed in our hearts, shed abroad in our hearts by who? The Holy Spirit, amen. That love we have for the lost, that desire to see our neighbors, our friends that don't know Jesus, even our enemies saved, comes from Jesus. Paul says of non-believing Jews who were spitting at him, who hated him, who wanted them to die and trying to kill him. He said that his heart is just broken and, and if he could give his own self for their salvation, he would. Do you think Paul loved them more than Jesus? No, Jesus did give his life for them, amen? He did. So are you with me? Now, context of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Let's look at the, we've been looking at more John's context of the word world. Never use of the elect. If you ever see John and it means elect, show me, because I know you're not going to find it. But it means the lost world over and over and over and over again. But when you go to the Gospel of John, John 3.16, how can you prove to somebody who's not sure if Jesus loves them, who's not sure if God loves them, who's not sure if Jesus died for them and is struggling with their salvation, assurance of salvation, and I've ministered to several people like that through the years, okay, as a pastor, wondering, because people get all kinds of messed up in these doctrines. How can you prove to them John 3.16 is to be taken at face value? You do the same thing we just did in 1 John. You look at the way the word world's used. You say, hey, let's look at the way world's used. And we won't spend as much time throughout the Gospel of John because I'm looking at my clock and I've got 17 or so minutes. So guess what? I'm going to spend it. I'm, we're we're going to get to it, though. We're going to get it. We're going to see it. Let's look at John's prologue because he brings up the world in the very first chapter. You know? Let's see how John introduces the world and who they are. You know, the beginning of John is thesis, you know. In the beginning was the Word, verse 1, and the Word was with God, and the same was beginning with God. And everything was made through Him, and nothing came to being but by Him. First John, or I'm sorry, Gospel John, verses 1 through 3. So yeah, and then he goes on to say that He's the light of men. And He lights the heart of everyone that comes in the world. Let's look at what He says. Look for the word world. And don't let me tell you what it means. You tell me what the word world means when we get to John. If it's speaking of the elect or the lost. John chapter 1, the Gospel of John now. Chapter uh, 1, because before you get to 3.16, you got to still you gotta deal with how John is using it from the outset. How, what's his usage and how does he use it throughout the Gospel of John? So in verse 4, in him was a life, right? In him was life, that's Jesus. And the life was what? The light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name is, was John. He's talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light. So that all might believe through him. So that what? What was this? Why did God have to who? All. Do I have to mention it doesn't mean elect every time we go to these? No, we obviously know it doesn't. Okay, that all would believe through him. And you know how I know it's speaking not just the elect there for sure? Because in John chapter 5, verse 34 and 35 and verse 40, Jesus says to Jews who will have him killed later, who are hating on Jesus and rejecting him, he says, John was a light. And they didn't abide in his testimony. In fact, in Luke 7 30, it says in Luke chapter 7.30, it says of those who rejected John's baptism, it says they rejected God's purpose for themselves. 
They rejected, listen to this, it says they rejected, the Jewish leaders, they rejected God's purpose for themselves and refusing to be baptized by John. That shows me that the all means not just the elect. And then Jesus says, John was a light, but you didn't abide in it. He goes, but I'm saying these things that you may be saved, but you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Same deal. He's talking, he's pleading with people who refuse to come to him. Now, go back to John. Let's look for the word world here. How does he use it? The word world in the prologue of John 1. Verse 8, he was not the light, that is, John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, Jesus is the true light, which coming into the world enlightens who? Every Every man. Look at this now here, the word world comes up. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did what? Not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not what? receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right or the power to become what? The children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So I'm just asking you, the word world right there, right? Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him and he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Is the word world there speaking of the elect or the lost? Is it speaking of those who were elect and turned to Jesus? Or is it speaking of the lost who didn't know him? The lost. The non-elect, guys. So just from the outset, when you're reading John's gospel, you come to the conclusion, when you look at the context, you get in your mind, this world's rejecting the light of Christ. So you get to John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It sets you up with an understanding that should be very, very helpful. Now, this begs the question. Uh, well, there's a condition, though. As man has received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Let's look at how he uses the word world, and then we'll get to the immediate context. We'll look at John 3.16 and look at the surrounding verses. We're looking at the very broad context of the Gospel of John, the New Testament context we've looked at. We're looking at now the broader context in the Gospel of John itself right now. Then we'll look at the immediate context. And boom, 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 man. Four strikes. It's really three, but we got four strikes, and Calvinism is out when it comes to John 3.16. But uh, let's go ahead and look at John chapter, well, uh, 12, verse 31. Because Jesus used the word, the word world's used throughout the Gospel of John, and it's never used of the elect. I don't know any Calvinists, by the way, that say, oh, yeah, this word world means elect right here. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 31 other than John 3.16, but, but obviously it doesn't. But I'm saying they don't look at these other verses. Oh, all these verse, verses mean the elect. John 12.31, uh, what does it say? Now judgment is upon this what? World. world. Now the ruler of this world has been cast out. Wow. Now can you put elect there? Now judgment is upon this elect. Now the ruler of this elect has been cast out. What? And by the way, I debated the five-point Calvinist when this church started, man probably about a year after we were here. And he was on, I shared this with some of you before, and he stopped me on the street when I was sharing the gospel on Hollywood or Highland and Sunset in Hollywood. I was there with the church. I take him out witnessing. We share the gospel. And a Calvinist said to me, I don't have time to get in the full story because I've mentioned it before, but I'll just say, he said, hey, I hope you're not telling people Jesus died for them. Well, we had a debate on who Jesus died for about a year later in our fellowship. He was an elder at his church, and I think I mentioned to you guys his own pastor would not let him debate me at their church because he said too many people in the church believe like we do. 
like I do, you do. So anyway, we did, I said, we'll do it later. Church just started. Let's let us, you know, grow in our faith together and our understanding. And uh, I don't want you to deceive. I didn't use the word deceive. I don't want you to throw new Christians off regarding God's love and who he is. So about a year later, this gentleman came, and it's on CD uh, somewhere. Robert Severn used to pass them out all the time. Did you ever see it, Diane? I don't know if you saw that one. I saw you smile, so I don't know if you got that from Robert. Anybody see that video? Okay, you've seen it, Mr. Kincaid. You know, it's been sold. That's when, that was when I was like, you know, very young. The 1800s, you know, way back then, man. So, but uh, what I did, I felt sorry for the guy because you know what I did? Because he wants to believe that the elect were the elect in the nations throughout the world. I said, let's see if the word elect fits with the word world. So I showed all these transparencies with the word world. Then I superimposed the word elect over world. And it actually, I felt bad for him because it's embarrassing. It definitely doesn't mean elect. The word world. So if you look at, go to, go to John chapter 14, verse 30. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Satan's not the ruler of the elect. Look at John chapter 16, verse 8 through 11. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of what? Of sin, right? Uh, and he speaks again in verse 11 of that lost world. John 7, 7. Go to John 7, 7. If you got, I know I'm like not going in total order here. I should have. John 7, 7. The world cannot what? Hate you, but it what? Hates me because I testify about it and its works are evil. Would that make sense if the world was the elect there? The elect cannot hate you because it hates me. <laughs> what? That makes no sense. John 17, 9. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you gave, you have given me, for they are yours. So here he's not praying for the world, but he's praying for the apostles. Are they not part of the elect? Well, that word world obviously doesn't mean elect. Some say, well, look, he's only praying for the elect there. Well, even if he's just praying for the elect, so? And by the way, he's not just praying for the elect in John 17. It's high priestly prayer. You know that? Because he prays the Father would sanctify them and that we would love one another. And our love for one another would be so powerful, so beautiful, that the world would know that God sent him. Amen? He's also praying that the world would come to know who Jesus is and what the gospel is. Praise God. John 4, 42, they said to the woman, the Samaritan woman that is, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard our, for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of what? The world. By the way, something really heavy occurred to me when I was studying this uh, within this last week. From the last time I taught you on this and then later I thought I was meditating on this I'm like looking at the the the, the more you know immediate context and I'm going to get into that because remember what you just said you just read in chapter four which just comes right after three the Samaritan woman gets saved right and then she's a witness to other people and they're coming to Christ right and they've came to realize that he's the savior of the what world keep that in mind because it's golden John 7 3 and 4 so his brother said to him leave here and go to Judea so you're, uh, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Look at John chapter 15. Go there, please. Verse 16. If the world hates you, who's the world? The lost wicked people, amen? Is there a Calvinist here? No, it means elect. No. Then it would say, if the elect hates you, you know that it, the elect, has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the elect, then the elect would love its own. But because you are not of the elect, but I chose you out of the elect because of this, the elect hates you. That makes no sense. No, but let's read it for what it really says. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. What did we learn in the prologue, guys? What did we learn in the prologue? He came to his own, but his own did not accept him. Even though he made the world, the world did not know him. See how the word world is being used consistently throughout the Gospel of John. Can I hear a hearty amen if you're seeing this? How do you not see it? If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, the elect are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Wow. Wow, you guys. Now let's look at the immediate context. Because i got a few minutes left. And you need to understand the immediate context. Mr. or Mrs. Calvinists, they mean good. They love Calvinists, love God. Be nice to them. Wrap your arms around them. Treat them as brothers and sisters. But keep in mind, if you had a brother or sister at your dinner table, right? And they, and they, love, and they love their mom or dad, but they just don't know if their mom or dad really loves them. They don't know if their daddy loves them. They know he's paying for a trip to everybody else to go to Europe, but they don't know if he wants to pay for them because I'm not sure if he loves me. You need to wrap your arm and say, hey, I love you, but you need to understand how much God loves you. He cares about you. Your heart should break for people because I'm telling you right, there's a lot of really smart Calvinists out there. There's a lot of really well-meaning, well-intentioned Calvinists out there. Okay? So a lot of people want us to just totally write off Calvinists. I won't do that. I know too many Calvinists that love Jesus, that just have a misunderstanding because they've been taught Calvinism. I told you, a Calvinist pastor, he was no longer a pastor at the time, but he was at one of our men's retreats uh, back east. And he's like, Joe, man, he's a powerful guy in the Lord. He goes, Joe, I have to admit, I told my wife, if you drop my wife and I off at an island, and we just had our Bibles, I told her, and we just had our Bibles, we would never become Calvinist. You have to be taught it. That's true. I've never met a Calvinist who just had this Bible by himself and never heard of Calvinism. Not saying they're not out there, but it's incredibly rare because you're not going to get that from Scripture. Now go to John 3.16, and let's look at context. John chapter 3, verse 16. Versus con- let's look at context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. What's going on here? He's ministering to Nicodemus. Nicodemus uh, came to him by night. He was the teacher of the Jews. And he said, we know that you're of God. No one can do all these miracles unless he's from God. And instead of getting into theological talk about miracles, Jesus cut right to the chase. And said to Nicodemus, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again uh, to see the kingdom of God. You must be born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Three times, verse 5, verse 7, verse 3, verse 5, verse 7, he said, you must be born again. Now Nicodemus, like many of the Jews, felt salvation was just of the Jews only. And Jesus is broadening his understanding. So look at what happens in John chapter 3. Because Nicodemus is like, how can someone be born again? Can they come out of their mother's womb all over again? I don't think he actually believed Jesus was saying that. I think he was being facetious. I mean, Jesus, explain what you're saying here. Jesus is like, if you can't understand earthly things, how are you going to understand heavenly things? But then he gives him a picture that Nicodemus, who's called the teacher of Israel, would have been familiar with in verse 14. Look what he says. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will not, whoever believes will what? In him what? Have eternal life. What's going on there? Well, the Jews had been complaining and murmuring against Moses and against God, saying, you brought us out here to die. You know, 
and they started complaining about the manna and everything else. And God allowed a bunch of snakes. Just didn't allow. He sent the snakes to plague them. His wrath came upon them because they were ungrateful, unappreciative that he was feeding them manna and they were, when they should have been just torched long ago, he saved them. And he continued, continued to wander. But he showed grace to them and showed them an incredible amount of love. And they were not appreciative. Be appreciative. Amen. Be appreciative. They were unthankful. And they were just dying left and right. They were just dying. You know? <coughs> Excuse me. And God told Moses something very interesting. We read in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food or no water, and our soul loathes or hates this worthless bread. They're getting tired of eating the same thing over and over again. And then in Numbers 21, if you want to go there, verses 8 and 9, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that, listen to this, that everyone who is bitten, listen to this, that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked on the bronze serpent, he lived. By the way, my Calvinist brothers and sisters, many of them say, oh, you have to be born again before you can have faith in Christ. In other words, if you're witnessing somebody, you're hoping they're born again because only a born again person can put faith in Jesus. That's backwards, by the way. The Bible teaches you put your faith in Jesus, then you're what? Born again. Born again. Just the opposite. They get the cart before the horse. But what happens here? Does the life come first or the look come first? When, when, did you have to be born again? Or, or I should say, did you have to get life and then you look at the serpent? Or do you have to look at the serpent and then you get life? Look you look to live, man. You look to live. And that's the background that anybody, everyone, that would look could be saved. But now Jesus brings it beyond Israel to who? The world. What world? The world that in chapter 1 in the prologue didn't know him. The people also in the world like the Jews who came to his own and his own received him not. The lost throughout the world. Then you go to John 3.16, and what do you read? Right after that, Jesus broadens it to the whole world. For God so loved the world. He made the world. He's talking about those he made, not just the Jews. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, says Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God, not, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be what? Saved through him. Brothers and sisters, it's going to become even clearer right now as we end this. Last, we've got like three minutes left or so. Three to five. Better cover myself. Listen carefully, guys. What happens in chapter four? Who does Jesus go to when the disciples are shocked that he's talking to this woman because she's a what? She's a Samaritan. And they were the hated race among the Jews. And he wants her to be saved. He went out of his way to witness to her. He was fasting. Like, Jesus, you've got to be hungry by now. I have food that you don't know about. He wanted this girl to be saved. And Samaritan woman who had been married you know, over and over and over again and then was living with a man comes to Jesus. And then she goes and shares the good news with everybody else in the town. And they come and say, we now know that he's the savior of the, not just the Jews, but of who? The world. Are you with me? He's saying, hey, look, even those who are hated and rejected, are you with me? We're looking at immediate context now. Keep that in mind. That's what blew me away. I'm like, whoo, I never even thought about that. The very next chapter is a Samaritan woman after he's saying, for God so loved the world. It's just like, Maybe I did, but I don't remember thinking about it. I'm like, wow, that's so powerful. But guess what? The, the very immediate context, and you don't want to miss this part, right when you get to the verses, right after verse 17. You know how we know the world he's talking about is the lost, wicked world that rejects Christ? That's the world he loves. You know how we know that? 
Look at the very next verses. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. And now this is the context. For God so loved the world, they gave his only God, son, the whoever believes shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. For uh, God has sent his son in the world to condemn the world, but the world through him should be what? Be saved. The context is he wants these lost people to be saved. But what are we reading in verse 18? He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because why? He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The basis of which Jesus judges people now is their rejection of Jesus because they could have been saved. Are you with me? Now he shows that the world that he loved and gave his son for, context, 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 context is king, rejects him, showing that it's not the elect. Look at the next verse. This is a judgment that light has come into the what? World. And men love what? The darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. Remember he said, the world hates me and does not come to light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be what? Manifested or clearly seen as having been wrought in God. Those who have an open heart to God. He's talking contextually in the first century about Jews who are seeking to the true Jews who are truly trying to want to do what right by God will, will recognize the Messiah. He that wills to do the will of the Father will know the doctrine. John chapter 7, verse 17. It's really powerful. That's the crazy thing, guys. When I was at the first, I think it was the first or second men's retreat that we did in back east. Maybe it was the first one. There was a really neat brother, and I call him brother. He was a, he's a strong Calvinist, but he loved the Lord. He was like, maybe, I, I, I think in his mid-70s, pretty, uh, you know, just really a neat guy, you know. Uh, and he challenged me several times through that conference with regard to his Calvinism. Didn't like some of the things that Chad and I were saying about, you know, our, our understanding of salvation. And it was kind of, I remember I was talking to him at one point, and I, I could see he was uncomfortable. And he was like, why am I here, pretty much? We're going through the letters to the churches, right? There's a lot of strong warnings in the churches, and a lot of Calvinists don't believe those warnings apply to the church. They do. And then at the end, though, he came up to me, and he gave me this. He gave me this cross and a heart. And he is a, he puts shoes on horses. He's a metal worker, but he's retired. He used to shoe horses. He said, I made this for you, Joe. He didn't even know me. He gave me, he gave me this heart with a cross in it. And it's beautiful. And the crazy thing about this, speak of God's sovereignty, I, I said, into the congregation when I was preaching, I said, I wanted to bring nails, a nail with me and put it in my pocket. Because one of the verses I went through, one of the churches I went through was Ephesians, or Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus, where it says, remember, you have forsaken your first love, right? Remember from when you start falling, repent, and do your first works. So I thought, you know what? I'd like to just put a, a, a nail in my pocket so when I feel it from time to time, ouch, and it gouges me, I get a little tiny infinitesimal picture of a little bit of the pain that Jesus went through, which is nothing compared to what he went through, but it reminds me of what he went through. Like, whoa, just think of what he went through. Just remind me of my first love. I was going to do that. And I mentioned that. I didn't get a chance to do that, but I was going to do that in the future. I'm tripping out. Same. He comes up. He goes, Joe, and he gives me this. I'm going, no way. He gives me two horseshoe nails in the form of a cross, in, the form, in a heart. And I said to him, to my Calvinist friend, I go, Thank you so much. I go, that means a lot to me. I go, it makes me think, though, of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I got the heart and then the love gift, the cross, Christ, what he did for us. That's amazing. I thanked him for that. And I said, but the context shows that he died. He gave himself for all. He gave his son for all. He loves the world. He started bawling in my arms. I'm hugging him, saying, thank you. He starts crying, heavy, just <laughs> shaking, convulsing, crying. And I go, he loves you. Because I said, I said, he loves you. He wants you to know that you don't have to doubt him, that he gave his son for you. You don't have to doubt it, because I know many Calvinists are doubting it, even though they have a tough upper lick and act, and act like, no, I'm, of course, I'm one of the elect. Not that they say it like that, but some are like so cocksure. It's like, well, how, how do you know for sure? He only died for the elect. He was, he was convulsing. And he started convulsing when I said, you don't have to wonder. And I go, Calvinists need to know that he loved the world. They gave himself for everyone that whoever believes won't perish. And, and I go, and he's crying. He goes, you know what he says to me? He goes, yeah. He goes, they just need, speak of Calvinists, he goes, they just need to keep reading. I'm like, amen, brother. They need to just keep reading the context. And brothers and sisters, if you leave with anything tonight, know the context of John 3.16 is in the context that the prologue shows that the world is the world that rejects Christ. And the word world is used of those who reject Christ, hate him, want nothing to do with him. And when you look at the context of John 3.16, we look at a lot of other stuff, right? But if you look at the context, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes him shall not perish but have eternal life. He has sent his son to the world to condemn the world, the world through him should be saved. But this is the judgment. This is the condemnation that men love darkness rather than light. The light came into the world, but the world, he says, hated the light. That's the world that he loves so much. That's the world that he gave his son for. That's the world that makes up and made up before we were saved, you and me. Amen? You don't have to doubt his love for you. Now, I want to encourage you because you don't have to be an adept student on how to refute Calvinism. But guess what? Nobody here has an excuse when it comes to refuting Calvinism, when it comes to John 3.16, amen? And I say that not to shame you, but to encourage you. Remember what we've learned here tonight. Remember when you look at John 3.16, remember the prologue. Remember the context of how it's used. Remember the serpent and the pole and everyone could look, amen? And then Jesus broadens that message to even the hated Samaritans, amen? And he shows that the world are those who, in the very context, 1 John 3.19 and 20, the world hated me, the world that God so loved. And he gave his son for. Amen. What a wonderful, awesome Savior that he loves each and every one of us. You never need to doubt it. What you need to do and I need to do is we need to bow our knee and say, what an awesome God you are. And we need to recognize that if we reject him, he says in 1 John 3.18, this is a judgment that they did not believe in the only begotten Son of God. How could you be judged for not believing in him if he didn't die for you? <laughs> Wouldn't make any sense. I'm going to just go on and on. Amen. But... We got it, man. So this Christmas, and we're going to move on from 1 Timothy 4.10 now, but this Christmas, you know absolutely you are loved, amen. And whatever you go through, you know, struggling at your work, struggling at the job, struggling with neighbors, friends, family relationships, whatever you're struggling with, memories of people who died this time of year, a lot of things can be very, very painful uh, when we go through this time of year for people. Not have enough money, I wish I could have, you know. Make it about Jesus, Amen. Make your Christmas about Jesus. And in doing so, you know, I'm going to be, wow, look at that. I'm going to be like seven minutes early. Isn't that crazy? Some of you are like, no, you won't. I'd bet on you probably usually. But you know what? Let's all stand up, please. 
Oh, by the way, you guys, let's go to Fridays and not Chili's. I don't know if you got the memo. Talk about the live streamers. Anybody else wants to fellowship over there? Great. You know, we've got these guys, what, another four or five days or so? Three or four? So we love you guys. And thank you guys for visiting us from all over the place. And we love our live streamers that are listening by way of whatever state or country you're in. We praise the Lord for you. You know, uh, got an awesome God. And my seven minutes is going bye-bye. No, it's only 24 after we're good. But he's good, amen? So, you guys, what do you do for someone who gave you life that you rebelled against, that loved you so much that he became a man and was slaughtered on the cross to save you and is now preparing a place for you? And he had no place to lay his head, but he came and became poor so we'd become rich. What kind of thanks do you give him? Minimalistic type of thanks? Uh, so-so thanks or great thanks and praise? Let's thank him and give him the thanks and praise he deserves. Amen. We love you, Father. And we love you, Jesus. Hallelujah. We love you, Lord. Let us praise you now and forevermore. You are so, so, so good. And Father, we thank you. We praise you. We pray in your son's name that you would help us to continue to love your truth but that we would die on these hills, Father, in regard to who you are in your character and your nature. For your word says twice in 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16 that you are love, Father. And we thank you for that great love. Oh, what manner of love is this that we should be called the children of God. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Give somebody a big hug. God bless you guys. Merry, Merry Christmas. Love you guys.